0: They need a safety net. And so we're coming in as critical partners in the work. We're embedding within school and district literacy ecosystems. We're ensuring that kids have this one-on-one daily instruction that's differentiated for them while also providing a really crucial scaffold to classroom teachers while they learn to do this work themselves. And then once they do learn, they're sustaining it and we're able to go and ignite another school system.
1: Well, Jess, it's a pleasure having you on here. You're the founder and CEO of Ignite Reading. Uh, I got the the pleasure of meeting you a few weeks ago, and uh, you know you've have you have a whole bunch of interesting interesting stuff in your your past, and you know what you're working on, and how you've gotten to where you are today. I'd love to dive into all of that. But one of the things you did was give me some homework for this episode. I, I went and listened to uh, "Sold a Story" by uh, Emily Hanford, uh, and it's outside of my normal repertoire of podcast uh, listening, you know, I'm usually, you know, obviously in the tech, uh, you know, category for for podcast listening, but this one was quite interesting, quite sad, uh, you know, it went into the reading crisis in the United States and why kids aren't learning to read, uh, you know, as well as maybe they used to from previous teaching styles. And I think that's, you know, based on what you're doing, I, I think that's a great entry point for our conversation today.
0: Thank you so much, Brian. I'm super excited to be here. And yes, you did have homework because uh, once a classroom teacher, always a classroom teacher. So it's completely (laughs) appropriate that we would start this by unpacking your homework assignment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Good. So, um, let, let's let's go right into that. So, uh, just for the listeners, uh, could you give the backstory of what that podcast "Told a Story" is all about, uh, and then how that ties into the work you're doing, and why why this is a problem in the United States?
0: Yes, definitely. Um, I'm I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen to that podcast. The journalist Emily Hanford, about four years ago, wrote a piece. Uh, I think it's called Hard Words, and she talked about this crisis in a way that was so concise and articulate and that expressed in a very concrete way, connected back to the research around how the brain learns to read, what the problem is in American education and, and how Um, for, For decades, we've been teaching kids to read the wrong way, even though we know what the right way is, and it set the world on fire in many ways because so many educators had been feeling like something wasn't quite right, and then it was deeply validating to read this piece and be like, oh, my gosh, no wonder And it all ultimately goes back to um, publishers in the space who have been perpetuating ineffective practices. And um, the way that this connects to my work is is a few ways. I mean, first of all, um, about 20 years ago, I, I stepped into the classroom as a brand new teacher. I was in the Bronx. I came into the profession with an alternative pathway meaning i didn't go to graduate school to learn how to be a teacher although even if i had i probably still would not have learned to teach kids to read um, which is another problem Um, and i'm in this classroom i'm teaching fifth grade and i'm realizing right out of the gate that many of my students don't know how to read and I have no idea how to teach them to read. And what and age I,
1: uh, bracket did you say this was?
0: This was fifth grade. Wow. And some of the kids in my class were non-readers, meaning you know they they could not read a single word, even the most simple word like cat. And then other kids could read simple words, but could not read more complex, multisyllabic words. And so then as a result, they couldn't fluently read connected text and if you can't fluently read text then you can't comprehend it's all connected and um i remember at the time just being like what this is this is absurd right i'm i'm 22 years old i'm fresh out of college and i went to public schools But what I didn't understand and and was just sort of at the beginning of my journey of understanding during that time is that the zip code you're born into and um, the color of your skin and your parents' education level have a lot to do with whether or not you are going to be lucky enough to attend a public school where you will hopefully learn to read. And if for some reason the school doesn't teach you to read There's also this shadow system in education where um, families who are higher socioeconomic status will pay for tutoring for their kids. And so I watched all of this happen in my beginning years of teaching and then continued to move through the system. In my experience, being a assistant principal of a school, a principal coach across schools in New York City, co-founded my first ed tech company with a focus on literacy. And, you know, in my third year of teaching, I did finally learn to teach kids to read, which was amazing because so many teachers have gone their entire careers, never learning. And so now it's just like, so validating, as I said, to have Emily Hanford out there doing this journalism that is helping all of these educators understand that, yes, the way that we were taught or not taught and what we experienced was not okay. And the company that I've, I've recently co-founded Ignite Reading is entirely focused upon solving this crisis and ensuring that once and for all kids in our country have the right to learn to read.
1: That's awesome. And you said so much in there. I want to drop back and touch on a few of those points. Uh, The, uh, you know, the topic of like the zip code and the socioeconomics and your parents education and skin color being a predictor. Uh, What struck me listening to Emily Hanford's podcast is that uh, it sounded like the people, like the parents that were on the show talking about their students, were coming from what you would probably consider like the top five percent of public schools in the country. Like it sounded like they were in, you know, higher socioeconomic classes. A lot of them were talking about tutors being the alternative, and so it really struck me that you know if these are the people that are seeing this problem, what does the rest of the population look like, and what are they experiencing? Uh, so that, that was a really interesting point that stood out to me listening to that podcast. And I have to finish the whole series at which I will do, uh, after, you know, getting started on it, but, uh, really impressive, really impressive work, uh, that you're doing. And it's, it's so interesting because you started out this journey to me as a teacher. And now, you know, you use this phrase in our first meeting, uh, accidental tech entrepreneur or accidental tech company founder, where you kind of backed into like, how can you have the greatest impact? On students that are struggling to read, and, uh, and, and you, you discovered technology being being the platform, the right the right tool to uh, to help impact more kids. So I want to bring it back to that, but I also want to touch on uh, you know a little bit more about uh, what Emily uh, Hanford was discovering in her uh, in her, her journalism work. Uh, which to me, what I captured out of it was that kids aren't being taught how to actually read. They're being taught how to guess what the next word might be.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, Can you
1: talk about that a little bit?
0: Definitely. The English language is a code and kids need to be given explicit, systematic, coherent, direct instruction in cracking that code. So what a lot of people don't realize is that while... Oral language is something that our brains have evolved to be able to naturally do. Learning to read is not. We don't just randomly wake up one day and start reading words and then sentences and then paragraphs. The vast majority of kids have to be given this explicit instruction so that they learn, for example, letter names and then the sounds that those letters make and then how to put those sounds together to read increasingly complex patterns. And when the brain has had enough um, explicit instruction and repetition, then those words get orthographically mapped to the brain such that you can't help but read a word. uh, daughter, I remember a couple years ago, we were driving around and she looks at a billboard and she just read it. And she goes, my brain just read that. I didn't even have to do anything. I didn't even have to try. I didn't even want to read that, but my brain read it. <laughs> and I was like, yes, because you orthographically mapped it. And she's like, what's that mean? <laughs> and I'm, and I'm explaining.
1: <laughs> you got and a little too far I'm ahead of her. For-
0: to, my, to my little kid. Who I who I <laughs> joke is the successor for my company. Um, but like that that is not a natural process. Kids have to be taught. And there are curricula that exist where that research around how the brain learns to read was just completely ignored. And so generations of kids have gone year over year in school, never being taught how to read. And the the problem with that, obviously, is that reading is the operating system of education. If you do not learn to read, you cannot do anything else in school. And for a lot of children, you know, they don't understand that they're a product of a dysfunctional system Instead, it's internalized as something is wrong with me. I'm stupid. And that learning trauma then can have, um, you know, significant impact in terms of like overall PTSD connected to school. and, And, you know, when a child learns to read and particularly when they learn to read on time, which is by the end of first grade, it means that in second grade and beyond, they're reading and reading and reading, and they're building more vocabulary. They're building more background knowledge. All of that plays into comprehension and their ability to then access everything else that is happening in school. So learning to read on time is fundamentally important to everything else about a child's school trajectory and ultimately their life trajectory. And so then when we look at, you know, our nation's illiteracy crisis, we look at what that means for the school to prison pipeline, what that means for our most marginalized and vulnerable kids in our country, what that especially means for uh, children of color and in particular black boys. It is a huge, huge issue of equity because it should not be the case that Your socioeconomic status, which in our nation is also very closely connected to skin color, dictates whether or not you're going to go to school and get the right to learn to read and or have a parent that's going to be able to provide a safety net when the schools don't give that equitable access.
1: I want to take a quick break from the episode and say, if you're enjoying this content, the best way you can say thank you is to subscribe. So if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you're on one of the podcast platforms, hit the subscribe button there as well. And also share it out to your friends and colleagues. If you find this content useful and you think other people will enjoy it as well, please send it out. And back to the episode. So I uh, I, I, have like firsthand experience with... Uh, with that in the school system, because I was, you know, kind of like a straight C's every now and then I'd get a B and, uh, often got a D or an F grow, you know, growing up, going through school. And I think I barely graduated with a 2.0 GPA. Uh, it came down to like one test at the end of high school and I barely graduated. And, I was uh,
0: the exact opposite. I was the kid who was like the conscientious, conscientious straight A student sitting in the, front <laughs> <of> the classroom. <laughs>
1: But yeah, I mean, I was always labeled uh, time and time again through the school system as uh, like special needs, not not like um, not not uh, like neurodiverse special needs, but more uh, you know just like learning style special needs. So they would put me into the classes that often you know uh, were you know I was lumped in with a lot of kids that had real learning disabilities and. And then, you know, in high school, they actually carved out just a program where I would just work on computers and TVs and fixed projectors and stuff like that. And I just did that for like half the day. And then they gave me Honestly, credit. Honestly,
0: <laughs> I should have gotten that class. That would be like a really important life skill for me because I still can't figure out how to work my television.
1: <laughs>
0: Which is why it's so funny that I run a tech company, although to that end, you mentioned earlier this idea that we had talked about previously around accidental tech in my case, because I was so focused on how do we design a model that once and for all creates a world in which every child has equitable access to a highly trained reading teacher that they see every day who precisely targets their individual decoding gaps so that they learn to read on time. And I was so focused upon the two sides of our model related to one, how we operationalize within a school day and partner with schools and districts so that kids every single day for 15 minutes a day are seeing this virtual tutor one-on-one. And then also the other side where we're recruiting nationally, uh, you know, non-educators, lots of whom are college kids, and putting them through this masterclass and becoming a highly skilled reading teacher, and then connecting them via video conferencing. And to me, that is so low tech, right? Because I was, and still am, very much focused upon that human component and the importance of not only a highly skilled reading teacher, but also the relationship and the bond that is formed between the child and that teacher when they're seeing each other every day 5 days a week and for on average the length of a school year but then behind the scenes is where all the fancy tech stuff is happening and we're building out you know the platforms and you know this massive amount of data that we're collecting around you know how kids are achieving And that work technologically behind the scenes, and I have the most incredible tech team that I feel so grateful to get to work with, is what is then enhancing the quality of that one-on-one session with a real human that is still arguably so low-tech in and of itself.
1: That's so cool. Uh, When you were describing like... uh... Yeah, there's a couple of threads I want to take here, but the first one, when you were describing and when I was listening to this podcast of how, you know, for the last two decades or so, kids have been taught to read, uh, it almost, to me, it sounded like they were, you know, sort of like creating pattern recognition robots, kind of like the way that AI works. You know, it's literally, that's that's what it is. It's like pattern recognition, as opposed to like actually knowing uh you know actually being able to sound out the word and and figure out what uh you know what what the letters together mean like what that forms as a as a word it's uh you know kind of like a code like you said uh the you know kind of like the act of figuring out guessing what would come next in the sequence that's literally how ai and and ml algorithms work uh trained on like a large data set so it's kind of like it's it seems like that's what this style of teaching reading is trying to accomplish uh but the example they use was one kid would say something like uh they'd be reading and they'd say uh uh the germans invited the polish uh in world war ii or something and then you know but they misread the word invite you know invaded as invited uh, <laughs> right. which has big implications on understanding what the sentence is supposed to say and mean uh it's two yeah. very different meanings so Uh, it can have pretty serious impacts on that person's ability to, to function or to excel in the future. Uh, so that, that really struck me. And then, uh, you know, tying in, uh, you know, my, my experience, uh, you know, I don't remember having an issue learning to read in school. I remember it being later on, like, you know, middle school, high school, where I was having issues, but, uh you know, I I was learning in the nineties, was this, was this around, like, was this style of learning around back then, or was this something after?
0: So such a great question. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my own experience growing up because I, I actually remember being taught to read when I was in first grade And when my mom tells the story, my mom is also an educator, and uh, she actually was, was a special education teacher in her career. And special education teachers, as part of their development, they do learn how to teach kids to read, which is really interesting, right? If you think about it, that you're more likely to learn how to read if you get tagged for special education because those are the teachers who have actually been trained in how kids learn to read. But that's that's not all of our kids, right? We need general education teachers able to teach the right way. And um, my mom talks about how when I was in first grade, which would have been probably somewhere around like 1987, 88, My first grade teacher was using materials to teach us to read that she was not supposed to use. So it was right around that time period in the late 80s, at least in San Francisco Unified, that they were told stop using, you know, phonics or what we call structured literacy. And instead do whole language and whole language is this idea of like, just scoop up the whole word. It's boring to teach you how to decode, just like look at it and and guess. (laughs) And my first grade teacher at the time refused to teach that way because she knew it was wrong. And uh, my mom, you know, talks about these grubby books that my teacher was using because they were so old but they were effective. And I learned to read, but my little sister who is two years younger than me was fully, uh, taught to read with this whole language model. And to this day still will struggle when she comes to a particular word, or you, you will see it play out sometimes in the way she spells and, you know, being the older sister, I am one of my Favorite things to do is play word games with her.
1: <laughs> it's not mean. <laughs> it's not
0: mean at all. <laughs> I I school her at boggle every time we play.
1: <laughs> oh man.
0: So, um so these these practices have been going on, as I've said, for decades. And it's it's mind-boggling, right, that it took Emily Hanford's journalism and I think just years of classroom teachers teaching this way and seeing that it wasn't working, and yet you're being told this is the district-mandated curriculum, all of your observations are tied to you, implementing what we're telling you to teach. Your tenure is tied to you getting good observations. None of it was actually about student achievement, right? And meanwhile, you've got these literacy statistics nationally that show only, you know, about 30% of fourth graders are proficient readers. That correlates to eighth graders also, right? So as a nation, two thirds of our kids are illiterate. That's not going to change when they become adults. So we have an adult illiteracy crisis also. And um, everybody is just okay with this for decades, right? Is it and, similar
1: to like common core math?
0: So common core are, is a set of standards that about a decade ago, gosh, I feel so old. It seems like <laughs> just yesterday, those standards came out. About a decade ago, uh, there was this idea that, you know, what could it mean to have national standards that all states are adhering to that are uh, rigorous across the board so that California is not doing one thing and Idaho is doing something different and New York is doing something different, right? They were trying to standardize it. And then in standardizing it, the idea was that publishers who over the years had drastically watered down their materials in mathematics and English language arts would have to overhaul their materials and make them more academically rigorous to align to these standards. And so in mathematics content, what that meant was that the ways in which teachers were teaching kids math moved away from a lot of the rote algorithms that didn't mean anything to more conceptual, uh, foundational instruction for little kids so that they understood why the algorithm was what the algorithm was by the time they were taught the algorithm, which I actually am a big fan of the Common Core standards and, and the rigor that they represent from a place of equity and making sure that all kids are getting rigorous. Instruction, right? That's really important. And then when I was a first grade teacher, I was teaching my kids math instruction that was aligned to Common Core. And I'll tell you, it was the first time for me that I was able to really actually understand a lot of math that I didn't understand when I was a kid because I didn't understand the conceptual work behind it. I was just spoon-fed algorithms that didn't make sense, which then played into like my own learning trauma that persists today in the realm of mathematics. Like I still get anxious anytime I open a spreadsheet with numbers because of the way that I <laughs> was taught or arguably not taught to do mathematics.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I've, I've heard, I've seen Common Core and it seemed weird to me The way that it works, but uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I have to admit I don't know a lot about it, so I'd have to kind of look more into it to form an opinion. But it's funny, like you brought up. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, and as it relates to literacy, there's all of these Common Core standards for literacy, also, and for the foundational skills component of of literacy, which is, you know, what they're doing in kindergarten, first, and second grade to learn to read. The standards are excellent, and it's all in there. What is supposed to be happening. But there is a disconnect between what we can say as experts in the field about what is the right way to do something and then what various publishers will create. And then the power that those publishers have when it comes to selling their materials and the people sitting in school districts who have The power to purchase materials and then influence what teachers are teaching kids. And there are a lot of people in positions of power in schools and districts who they themselves still don't know a lot about literacy and what is effective when it comes to early literacy instruction because they came through the system also. And didn't go to a teacher prep program that properly trained them, never themselves had the experience of what it means to truly teach a child to read, right? There are just so many places in the system where it's broken. Now, meanwhile, you have Emily Hanford's podcast, Lighting People Up. There is a documentary film that's out called The Right to Read Film. And in that film, um, the documentarian, Jenny McKenzie, really beautifully unpacks this problem and does so also from a racial equity lens. And, you know, Emily Hanford is in the film. I am in the film because a teacher that I coached here in Oakland um, and I taught her how to teach her kids to read. And she got amazing results for her kids. And so she's featured in the film. and. So, this problem has existed, but it's taken a long time for people to do something about it. So, now everybody's talking about this in education. You're seeing legislation where states are saying you cannot use these ineffective curricula, you have to adopt and implement science of reading based curricula. Districts are now adopting better curricula. This is great. But all of that change management takes time. Transformation in education does not happen overnight because of all of these dysfunctions that I laid out for you. And so And you're also,
1: one of the other problems, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think one of the other problems with education is that it's riddled with bureaucracy and red tape. And on top of that, the people that are on the front lines are often drastically underpaid.
0: Oh, yeah, completely, which is yet another flaw in the system, right? And so recognizing all of these flaws, recognizing all of these constraints, But at the same time, for me being fueled by this like passion to ensure that every child gets this right to learn to read. In designing Ignite Reading, the thing that I kept thinking about was how do we navigate all of the challenges in the system to still ensure that kids are learning to read? while all of this change management happens. Because it's not teacher's fault that they didn't learn this in graduate school. And then they stepped into school systems where they may or may not, most likely did not, learn how to do this. And now the system is trying to catch up. But that takes time. And in the meantime, if you're a little kid, you're in kindergarten once, you're in first grade once, you're in second grade once. And And that ship is sailing and so they need a safety net. And so we're coming in as critical partners in the work. We're embedding within school and district literacy ecosystems. We're ensuring that kids have this one-on-one daily instruction that's differentiated for them while also providing a really crucial scaffold to classroom teachers while they learn to do this work themselves. And then once they do learn, they're sustaining it and we're able to go and ignite another school system.
1: So you, you touched on a ton of things I want to circle back on, uh, and a, a few of them I want to put a pin on and circle back in five minutes. I think you teed up really nicely uh, how you're disrupting this. Like we just talked a lot about the problems in the education space and uh, you know what you're doing at Ignite Reading, the two categories, helping students at the tutor level and then helping reteach educators how to educate. Uh, So that's kind of like the two pronged approach you have, I want to come back to that and how you're, you know, uh, disrupting education, and and hopefully in a big way, in the coming years. Uh, One thing you said, though, earlier that I want to touch on now is like this concept of trauma from education. And I never really thought about it like that. But It's funny because the one single recurring nightmare that I have over and over again, literally like, you know, wake up in the middle of the night having this dream is uh, I'm back at the beginning of senior year in high school, but I'm like, I'm still an adult and I still own my business. And I have like, you know, 80 employees that depend on me. And I'm like, wait, how am I going to go through school again? I still have all this stuff I have to do. I can't do both. And like, that's like the one recurring nightmare that I have over and over again.
0: Yes. Right. I have this, horrible nightmare that I'm back in college and that I didn't actually graduate from college because I still have this one outstanding course. And of course, it's like a mathematics class (laughs) going full circle with my own learning trauma. And I spend the entire dream like running around trying to figure out how to finish this course and inevitably I keep sleeping through it or something keeps happening where I can't do it and I can't graduate and then you wake up and you have that moment when you wake up where you're like still in a panic because it felt so real
1: it's true and, yeah oh wait, no I'm me. an
0: adult <laughs> I'm not in college anymore that didn't happen I did graduate.
1: <laughs> it's so true. And like, I, I feel like I learned like the foundations of what I needed in school. But, you know, a lot of things, you know, I taught myself how to code after high school. I didn't go to college. I taught myself how to code. That was how I started my first company it was after, you know, learning how to be a software developer. Uh, you know, I, I learned how to write and, you know, understand literate, you know, uh, understand how to, you know, uh, be well suited at the English language through writing proposals, writing blog articles, uh, you know, just writing emails, stuff like that. I learned math and, and, you know, the concept of algorithms and that sort of stuff through learning how to code and, you know, dealing with like financials and P&Ls and stuff like that. So I feel like I really, I got the foundations from, uh, from school, from, you know, high school and middle school, but the, you know, the more, uh refinement like the more advanced knowledge that i've learned i learned on my own through just kind of doing things in the world so that's interesting but let's let's go back we, we had the pin earlier let's go back to the pin uh so i i want you to talk more about ignite ignite reading and specifically how you're disrupting the industry and how you're different you know we've talked the podcast I listened to from Emily Hanford talks a lot about this kind of like this publisher I don't know who the publisher is, but this this one publisher and then these these certain uh authors who are proliferating this ineffective way of learning how to read and you know how how does your model work different and how do you leverage technology to create the greatest impact?
0: right. so the ineffective practices that exist and the right to read film really, beautifully lays this out, similarly to how Emily Hanford does, but then also with the visual in the documentary. A- an example of the ineffectiveness, I'm, and it, it, it's gonna sound so absurd when you hear this, but if a child were reading a an early text and uh, it the words might say, I sat on the couch right? That's what the words could literally say, but then the text would have a picture. And so a child who hasn't learned to crack the code and actually read words as written would read that sentence potentially as I sit on the sofa because they're looking at the picture. And this methodology of whole language that's been perpetuated by these publishers And the authors Lucy Calkins and Fountas and Pinnell would be like, "Yep, that works," because sofa means couch, so like you get the gist. That's absurd because when you take away the pictures, it means that they're not actually able to read the text, and as text becomes increasingly complex, it means that they're not able to access what they're reading because they've never actually learned to read. The words. And so, what we're doing with Ignite Reading is we're going back to the basics. We're going back to what is tried and true in how you teach kids to read systematically, explicitly, coherently, right? And directly. And so, in our sessions, what we're doing for kids is first of all, we're leveraging a real curriculum written by reading researchers that uh, takes kids through all of the pieces of the code so that they're learning how to read words and then they're getting so much practice that it becomes automatic, which then leads to fluency, which then enables comprehension. So while decoding is not the game, the game is being able to make meaning of increasingly complex text Decoding is the ticket to the game. If you do not learn to decode, you cannot do anything else. And that's in like
1: sounding it out, decoding. That's right.
0: Yeah. Sounding it out, right? I remember
1: doing that in elementary school. Like that was something they were teaching still. And that was in the like early 90s, you know, early to mid 90s for me. But uh, I remember that being something that they taught at that time.
0: Yeah. And so you're really lucky because you happen to sit in a school where Teachers were teaching that way, but that was not happening universally for all kids. And so what we're doing with our program is we've taken this methodology and we are training up, you know, our tutors go through this 10 week certification where they have 60 hours of paid professional learning in the why and the how, the why being, you know, the science of reading and how the brain learns to read So they're learning about the research, the how being this scripted, evidence-based curriculum. But learning just that in a vacuum would not be enough, right, because they're not applying it. And so then we're building this working memory for them and giving them lots of at-bats at learning to teach this way by having them go through this tutoring practicum experience in combination with the paid professional learning Wrapped around all of that is this really um, you know, intensive multi-pronged coaching model where our literacy specialists are doing real-time observations and feedback, doing video audits, using that information to then create targeted, differentiated coaching for these tutors. So they emerge from this 10 weeks really, really good at teaching reading, and at that point, you know, once they're out of certification, they can work up to 30 hours a week doing back-to-back tutoring sessions with kids. Meanwhile, the experience for students is they're going to have a baseline assessment where the tutor is understanding what their precise decoding gaps are, which then means that the daily instruction is targeted to those gaps. So some kids, Might be further along on the continuum of learning to read. So their time doesn't need to be wasted learning the sounds that letters make. But other kids are still missing that most basic alphabet knowledge around letter names and sounds, which, by the way, is something most kids should learn before they even enter kindergarten. We have kids in our program as old as middle school who are still learning basic alphabet knowledge. That's that's how much the system has not equitably served them, right? And so they have massive gaps that we're trying to close. And-
1: Do you find what, that there's like more of a theme on those types of students? Like are they coming from like low income inner city neighborhoods or rural underfunded school districts yeah. or is there like a commonality there?
0: Yeah, I the commonality there is poverty right um and everything that comes with poverty um, including attending schools where you are likely to have the least experienced teachers teaching you and yet even in in high socioeconomic status schools That have used this curriculum those kids didn't learn to read either it's just that again they have the safety net of parents who can afford tutors and who because of their parents education levels can do a better job of advocating and so that would be the common denominator and yet education allegedly is supposed to be the great equalizer in our country and and so what we're doing that is disruptive is we're getting in there and we're saying it is not okay that kids are not learning to read. While you, school system, are doing change management, we are going to come in and make sure that once and for all, kids have this right to learn to read. And we're not going to say that it's okay that, you know, there's there's a lot of rhetoric around reading by grade three. Well. I'm a parent. The idea that my child wouldn't learn to read until grade three, maybe, hopefully, is just not acceptable. And and really what needs to be happening is that kids have to be learning to read by the end of grade one. So while we are serving kids all the way up through eighth grade, because that is the, the status quo, that is the crisis, the vision is ultimately a world in which kids learn to read by the end of first grade. And we're we're embedding and we're partnering and we're disrupting because we're breaking this cycle of inequity. And we're essentially showing that, you know, it's 2023. There is no reason why we can't be leveraging technology and the tech in this case is video conferencing to bring a highly trained reading teacher to every child, to give every child the differentiated targeted support that they need. That is disruptive in and of itself. And we're fundamentally re the ways in which we could, as a nation, be teaching kids to read.
1: It's interesting. So uh, I want to get into like the business uh, side of it too. You know, the listeners here love to, you know, hear like business metrics and, you know, tech stuff. So I'd love to kind of hear, you know, like what's the scale of your operation? Uh, you know, how many students are going through your your product? You know, your your uh, platform rather? How many teachers? You know, like what's what's your team size? That kind of stuff. Uh, so if you can share, like, any kind of like scope of where you're at today, and then like what, you know, obviously the total addressable market for this is every student in America, but uh, you know, how fast do you think that you guys can climb that that uh? you know, ascend that, you know, uh, that chart of, hit, you know, hitting, hitting all these school districts?
0: Yeah. Well, the first thing, Brian, I'll tell you is we don't want to hit school districts, but we do want to impact them. We always joke that we're not trying to, um, <laughs> we're not trying to hit all the kids.
1: <laughs> <laughs> good, good, uh, good correction on the English language there.
0: <laughs> so. In terms of scale, I love talking about this because I still wake up every day and pinch myself because I just can't believe we're doing this. It's it's Being an entrepreneur, it's kind of like when I became a mom and I kept staring at my daughter and being like, oh, my God, my body made a human. And with Ignite Reading, every single time I'm in the field visiting schools and watching kids Engage in the program, it's that same feeling of like, oh my gosh, this idea and this vision that was in my head and in my heart is real and it's happening. So we ran our first in-school pilot in fall of 2021, so about a year and a half ago. It was here in Oakland where I live. We had 70 kids and 15 tutors. Fast forward, And now we are serving about 3,500 kids across nine states and about 80 schools. And it's only been a year and a half. So this is only like our second school year. Um, But last school year was a series of pilots where we went from this first school partner to then in January adding on a handful of other school districts and schools within those districts. So now we are today. Thank you. And what is so cool is to look to the fall horizon for next school year. I have more demand than I will have seats in my program because I don't want to scale so fast that I diminish the quality of what we are providing to kids because we are centering children in every single thing about our program design. And we are in this to get results for kids, not to make money. And so we will be serving come fall um, 10,000 kids, which is huge. And again, that's not even taking into account the level of demand that we have. And then we'll continue.
1: 3Xing year over year right now.
0: Yeah. And and we'll continue over the course of next school year. You know, we'll have 10,000 kids in fall, but we will keep adding more, uh, Implementations through the end of the school year, with a horizon for fall of twenty twenty four of serving at least twenty thousand kids. Though, so given our our trajectory, it could very easily be much more than that.
1: How many are how many students are there at this age? Is probably like t- low tens of millions in the United States.
0: I mean, it, we have a vision of ultimately teaching every single day, a million kids, at least. But when you talk about total addressable market, there are the first graders that are the vision, right? Making sure that we're proactively closing kindergarten gaps, covering first grade content, and graduating kids from our program so that they begin second grade, fluent, independent readers. But then there's the the fact that We have all of these kids in second through eighth grade, even high school, who still have decoding gaps. And there is nothing out there like what we're doing where they're going to get a human who is highly trained at doing this, who is not going to put in front of them materials that look like baby materials, right? Like these are just words on a screen. There's nothing about our user interface that's pedantic and demoralizing for older kids Instead, it's that the tutor will, you know, adapt based on a little kid versus an older kid that they're teaching. So there's a lot of opportunity out there, which if we only cared about the business, that would be great for business. And yet we're in this from a mission perspective. And so it's heartbreaking to think about, you know, how how much of a crisis this is, but it's galvanizing To see what is happening as a result of our work and and to know with certainty, because we have all this data, that we are teaching kids to read. We are, you know, in doing that, fundamentally changing kids' lives because of this opportunity. In terms of our tutor numbers, you know, I've talked about how in fall of 21, we had 15 tutors. We this fall will have a thousand tutors in our program. Wow, congratulations! Thank you. That tutor core keeps growing and growing, and we think a lot about the ripple effect. When you learn to teach a child to read, that is a skill set that you will forever have. It has an impact upon how you will parent someday if you have kids. It means that if you're an aunt, if you're a grandparent, you know, as a community member, you are that person that knows how to teach kids to read and people will know that about you. And so whether or not you're teaching kids to read as part of Ignite Reading, you now have a skill set that means that you can help more kids than if you didn't know how. And so we're thinking a lot about not just the context of our program, but also that ripple effect and you know how we're igniting even the teacher talent pipeline, because when a college kid is in our program and they're learning to do this, that has implications for how they re-envision what their careers may be. And we have tutors now who are going into education because of this experience. We're also partnering with teacher prep programs And they're taking our model and flowing their pre-service teachers through it, which means more and more teachers will enter the classroom knowing how to do this. And that's huge. We spun out of the nonprofit where I was incubating Ignite Reading. Last October, we became a public benefit corporation. When we spun out, we had less
1: than a B Corp.
0: It's not a B Corp. Um, A B Corp is a a specific designation that, you know, you fill out paperwork for. More than anything, it's it's marketing. Uh, A public benefit corp, and and many public benefit corps will also get the B Corp designation, but public benefit corp means that our mission trumps everything else and that our investors are impact-focused investors who understand that their return on investment might take longer, might even be smaller because we are making decisions that put our mission at the forefront, not our investors' return on investment.
1: So was I was actually just uh, talking, I, uh, I told you my my when we were meeting the other day, my wife is working on a book, and uh, she was uh, talking to me about a uh, a business idea she had that would, it falls in that kind of category where it needs capital to get going, but it's very much like mission focused and not investor return focused. And, you know, I haven't really, I've kind of heard of some investor groups that are like that, but it's not common. Uh, so are you, are you saying you've found and gotten funding from investor groups like that?
0: We have. And I feel really, really lucky because I have also had the experience where the investors aren't fully focused upon impact, where they say that they are, right, but their their video doesn't match their audio. And then how that means that the business is making decisions that aren't ultimately about you know the end user, which in our case is, is kids and educators, um, but instead about, well, What do we think is going to make us most attractive for acquisition? And in our case, because we're a public benefit corp, because of the investors who we have who are just incredible and so all in on on the impact that we're creating, it means that we are making decisions that unapologetically center children in the work and are about achieving the best possible results for kids. And I truly believe that if that is our north star, we will build a phenomenally successful business as a byproduct.
1: Is this a professional <laughs> investment group, or is this like uh, private angels doing this?
0: So we have a combination of both. We have private angels, many of whom are, um, you know, have had careers that have been focused upon education, and also we have a. A partner that's um that runs an impact fund, and they're our lead investor and just happen to be really passionate about literacy and and the lead investor views the work that we're doing as part of even his own legacy and it being that important from a mission standpoint.
1: Can you say who the lead investor is?
0: Yeah. It's Matt Greenfield from Rethink Education. And I just, I cannot say enough wonderful things about the experience of working with Matt. I mean, this is somebody with incredible business acumen and, you know, lots of experience and pattern recognition and to be able to leverage his expertise while also having the support to do this work right for kids is such a gift because my co-founder and I we circled the drain for about a year trying to figure out what we would be right because we were incubating in my nonprofit that I was running but it was taking on a life of its own and we were just like this is this is going to need to spin out and we both really wanted it to be a nonprofit but you can't get that kind of capital up front, particularly in early literacy. Mathematics philanthropy is a little bit different, but in early literacy, we weren't going to be able to get the philanthropy to build out, in particular, the tech infrastructure that needed to underpin what we were doing without becoming a for profit. And so we did a lot of research and learned about this public benefit corp structure and we were just like, that's it. That's what we're gonna do. We'll raise our Series A. We raised $10 million. And um, you know, we also uh are revenue generating and that's something that we've you're already uh,
1: cash flow positive. Yes. Wow, Jess, congrats. I mean you've built such an awesome company from everything you're you're describing. I, I'm so impressed by it.
0: Thank you. Yeah. And our team has grown really quickly too. I mean we were at about 10 folks in October we are approaching 40 employees probably by the end of next month and we'll talk next
1: year and you'll be at 400 probably oh yeah I mean
0: we're <laughs> we're growing as quickly as we're bringing on new partners and
1: it's so impressive like you said uh you talked about the rate that you're growing and everything I know about edtech especially this K through 12 world is that like the buying cycles are once a year at the beginning of the year and it takes like multiple years to convince a school district to buy onto something and then it takes some years to implement it and like you know your sales cycle is going to take forever like you're you're not going to be able to uh you know go to market quickly and sell your product or your program to school districts and generate revenue quickly in this industry uh you're a year and a half in you've already got a waiting list you're three xing year over year already Looks like you might even, you know, surpass that growth rate in the coming years. And your bottleneck is not sales; it's not getting school districts to buy in. No, it's, it's
0: myself. It's me. It's... <laughs> I have a problem. It's me.
1: <laughs> Be, being able to scale your program, like yeah. and you you have you have like a quality standard, which is great. Yeah, but like the bottleneck
0: is the quality standard, and that's a good bottleneck to have. Not you, wanting do to. Do you scale even have a sales
1: team, team, or is it just like no, growing I mean, on its own?
0: It's it's founder led sales right now. So it's, it's me. I have, um, a team of two people working with me around partnership development, but we have not even triggered the K-12 sales and marketing playbook that I know how to do, you know, because this is my third company in education because we have so much inbound demand, which has come as a result of really successful pilots um, earned media as a result of those pilots and the results that we're getting, right? The, the program speaks for itself. And I think that, you know, I come into this space, I identify at the end of the day as an educator. I do not think of myself as a tech company CEO, right? I still think of myself as a teacher and that. Empathy comes through in my interactions with customers who are, you know, superintendents and chief academic officers of school districts, and coupled with that empathy is authority. I have deep knowledge and expertise around teaching and learning and instructional design and what it means to get results for kids. And so that comes through in these interactions, but it also comes through in the design of the program and what it looks like and feels like when we partner with a school district. And um, every single thing about what we're doing is so intentional. And that is leading to these incredible results for kids and also teachers love this program because it's giving them finally the support that they need so that their kids are learning to read so that their kids can then access everything else that the classroom teacher
1: is teaching that's awesome uh let's let's just like jump forward 10 years and just imagine the most amazing future for ignite and what does that look like uh what what are what are you doing what does how big is your team? How much you know impact have you had? What is the future 10 years from now look like?
0: Okay, this is probably not the answer you expect. But if we do our job well and right, the future could look one of one of two ways. One way it could look is that ignite reading is the way. Every first grader in this country is being taught to read. And we have completely eliminated this illiteracy crisis. And we're ensuring that all kids leave first grade ready to start second grade knowing how to read, right? Um, Another world is one in which we have done such a good job igniting the system, right? And enabling teachers to learn to do this and you know transforming teacher preparation programs in order to ensure that those teachers are stepping into classrooms knowing how to do this and you have a body of educators in this country all of whom are teaching kids to read this way such that we've done our job and we don't need to exist anymore and then i am spending my time i don't know i'll go back into the classroom i'll be a kindergarten or first grade teacher in a school teaching this way, right? Which is like kind of a crazy thing to think about. That I want to do such a good job teaching kids to read and building and scaling this company and transforming education that my company doesn't even need to exist. We could sunset it because we did the thing that we wanted and needed to do. And we did it really well.
1: I mean, could it? You know, fold into like a government program or something. I don't know if that's ever been done before, but like a a, a corporation like folding into a standard, you know, legislation. Uh, I don't know what the wording is for it, but sort of like a regulatory program within the within the government.
0: It could, but I don't know. That's like a whole other can of worms we could open up about how. <laughs>
1: like,
0: that's where ideas go to die. Um. I feel
1: you. I, I feel you on that. But I, but I do think.
0: <laughs> There are ways in which, you know, if we were to be acquired someday, you know, based on who acquires us and the way that we get integrated into their model in order to have greater scale and greater reach, yes, that that could definitely happen. Um, Interestingly, I mean, it's still early days for us, but we have had publishing companies already reach out wanting to talk about acquisition because they see us as a vehicle for getting their curricula into schools.
1: That's the wrong model for what you would want to, uh, that that goes against your mission.
0: It's still too early also, right? I mean, we're not in this to be acquired. We are in this to once and for all, make sure that all kids learn how to read. And if that down the road leads to an acquisition it would be one that is done with intentionality and in service of continuing to perpetuate this really important work that we're doing. Um, but but again, I mean, our our deepest wish and desire is a world in which all kids are once and for all learning to read. I am a social impact entrepreneur. So is my co-founder and our board is deeply Committed to impact as well.
1: That's awesome. Uh, we didn't even get to your book, but you sent me a copy and uh, wrote wrote a really right note, a really nice note. Uh, it, you know, uh, inscribed in, in the inside of the book. But it's uh, cancer hates kisses. Uh, you're a cancer survivor, and uh, that's also an incredible part of your journey. I'm, I'm sure it had a, a lot of impact on uh, you know you as a person, and and you know how this mission transpired for you uh you know how this kind of like alignment you had with this mission uh you know came about in in your life and in your professional journey I do you want to talk about that at all and and your book and just a little bit about how your experience with cancer molded where you are today
0: Yeah I think you know for anyone who has survived cancer or is surviving cancer right they they call you a survivor from the moment you're diagnosed and you go through an experience like that. And in my case, it just put my passion on steroids and I have a deeper appreciation for how precious life is um, having gone through the experience of, of being diagnosed with breast cancer right after my daughter was born. And, um, Through surgeries and chemo and all of the fear and uncertainty, to now, you know, I'm eight years out from diagnosis. I am cancer free, which is an incredible gift and one that I don't take for granted. And there is still uncertainty in terms of what could happen in the future with a recurrence. And so, I think about how every single day is a gift and what do I want to do to maximize every day? What is my purpose on this planet? And I believe that my purpose, apart from being the best possible mom I can be to my own tiny human, is to help as many kids as possible learn how to read. And I feel really lucky that somehow... All of these pieces have come together and I am doing exactly that. I wake up every day. I am building this incredible company with the most amazingly talented mission driven folks. And we are teaching kids to read and we are scaling it and we are not going to stop until We are teaching at least a million kids a day to read, if not more. And then again, hopefully we do such a good job that we we once and for all eliminate this crisis. And I think that my experience as a cancer survivor definitely plays into that maniacal passion and focus that I have. And the book was um, my way of making meaning of a really traumatic experience and trying to use that experience to help other mothers who are going through cancer treatment and needed a way to easily explain to their young children what's happening but with a language that is really empowering and so cancer hates kisses and the message for kids is like give your mom lots of kisses and compliments and dance parties because cancer hates love cancer hates laughter cancer hates joy and those are all things that little kids can do to make their mom feel better when going through a really difficult experience
1: so cool uh you're so inspiring jess i i really you know both times we've talked i just i feel you know so lifted through our conversation and uh it was a awesome uh time having you on today. I do want to take a moment to celebrate. This is the first episode on this podcast in probably 10 or 15 episodes where chat GPT wasn't discussed. So <laughs> <laughs> this because is the first
0: I'm an accidental tech entrepreneur. That's why
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> if we had my head of technology or my co-founder, that would have definitely come up in some we way. need
1: a break from chat GPT. So this is a win in in my book.
0: awesome i'm so happy i could give you that break
1: (laughs) so jess thank you so much for coming on uh i'm definitely going to follow your work and you know how ignite reading progresses and uh i really you know i hope we stay in touch and i'd love to have you back on sometime
0: well thank you so much this was a wonderful opportunity and i'm really really grateful to you for giving me this space to share the incredible work we're doing and the way that you're spotlighting um entrepreneurs and tech, and in this case, a real big problem in education that hopefully we are going to once and for all solve.